Jean-Baptiste Jules Bernadot was born in the year 1763. He was the son of a French government worker, and as a young man, he joined the army at the start of the French Revolution. By that time, he had risen to the rank of sergeant. Eventually, he became one of Napoleon's first marshals, but in an odd twist of history, Bernardo found favor in the eyes of the king of Sweden, King Charles XIII, for his treatment of Swedish soldiers when they had been taken prisoner during the battle with Napoleon's troops. And so when Sweden's crown prince suddenly died in the year 1810, Sweden astonishingly offered to put Bernardo next in line for the throne. The commander of a former enemy, the next in line for the throne of Sweden. This son of a French government worker was renamed Charles John, the new crown prince of Sweden. And in 1818, after the death of King Charles XIII, Bernardo assumed the throne as King Charles XIV John. He was a popular but harsh monarch who reigned until his death in 1844 at the age of 81. It is said that during the embalming process, they discovered an ironic secret. Years earlier, when the king was still simply Jean-Baptiste, he had acquired a tattoo, obviously during the French Revolution. The tattoo was on his chest, and it was a picture of a red cap, the symbol of, li of liberation, with the French words translated, death to all kings. <laughs> the king of Sweden, tattooed with the idea of death to all kings. And in many ways, the Bible tells us that all people are like Bernadotte. We rebel against the king until we figure out a way to become a king ourselves. Psalm chapter 2 points us to this reality. I want to ask you to open your Bible with me. It's found on page 448 of the Pew Bible. Psalm 2 takes a step back and it gives us the whole view of human history. And as you know, there is a different perspective in heaven than there is on earth. When you are in the middle of human history, as we are, you see parts and pieces and dynamics and, de and decisions, and you get a glimpse, just a glimpse of the trajectory of human history. But when you stand above it all, as God does, when you stand outside of time, as God does, then you see the whole thing. God sees the patterns and propensities of humans. He knows the motivations of the heart and of the mind. And upon looking at us, he gives a warning and a call. A warning and a call to those who rebel against him. Those who seek to establish their own 
kingdom. And the psalm, like so many other psalms, has a near fulfillment and a distant fulfillment. Some of the fulfillment of this psalm can be seen in the king after God's own heart, King David. But this morning we focus on the distant or complete fulfillment that is found in God's eternal king, King Jesus. Over the past couple months, we've studied two ways to live. The Bible gospel outline as a picture of life, God, and humanity. And we've studied that in six different boxes as we've talked about already this morning. Here in Psalm 2, you will see all six of those boxes very clearly presented in this story. And so follow with me as we read Psalm chapter 2, a message to rebels with a warning and a call. This is what it says. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven, in the heavens, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and, in, and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Sometimes the tonal quality of a passage of scripture helps us to feel the significance of what is being said. The tone of Psalm 2 is distinct, isn't it? It has a seriousness to it. And it points really to severity and immensity of its subject. No soft words will do when people rage against the rule of God. And that's what the psalmist says happens. That the nations rage, the peoples plot, and the kings set themselves against the Lord. The nations, the peoples, and the kings. It sounds like a glimpse into all humanity, doesn't it? This is the story of all of humanity's rebellion against God as their king and against his anointed. And we know it's true. 
And we see it broadly in the world. We see it in ourselves and we see it in history. You know, sometimes it, it really annoys me when Christians focus on the fact that we have been persecuted and it becomes sort of the defining mark of our identity, the persecuted ones, the victims, if you will. And despite the fact that that at times is taken out of balance, there is a strong level of truth to it. Because for centuries, nations have raged against God and have taken it out on the ones who follow God. Today, we can look around the world and we see that in Afghanistan or Nigeria or North Korea, Christians have to worship in secret because of their faith in Christ. And they're denied basic human necessities and services if their faith in Christ is made known publicly. Those three countries, Afghanistan, Nigeria, and North Korea, are broadly considered to be the most difficult places on the earth to be a follower of Jesus. But even in other spheres here in the West, we see in Canada, in England, and in some ways in the United States, a growing pressure upon Christians to deny God's truth, to avoid using biblical descriptions or biblical language when describing things like human relationships or sexuality or gender or the sanctity of all human life, and the list goes on and on down the line. And there can be grave consequences for those who do not acquiesce to the kings of the earth as they rage against God in this way. But this is not just a broad problem. We actually see the significance of it in ourselves as well. We all want to live life our own way. We all want to have our own little kingdoms and to be the kings of those kingdoms. A number of weeks ago, I referred to a poem that captures the sentiment of fierce independence and obstinance against any sort of rule or authority. It is a poem about self-determination. It is an expression of culture that will bow to no other. It was written in 1875 by William Ernest Henley. It's called Invictus. I read you just one line weeks ago, and today I read for you the entire poem because it captures our own rage against an authority above us. And its expressions are strong in self-determination. Listen to what it says. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgings of chance, my head is bloody, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, or how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain 
of my soul. Fierce self-determination and a disregard for any authority or influence of authority above us. And that sort of view is really captured in the ethos of our culture today. It's viewed as almost heroic to be that independent. And even as the poem comes to its conclusion, I wonder if you caught the biblical language there. That this is not just an obstinance toward human authorities, it is toward any and every authority, even the authority of God himself, as it no matters how straight the gate or how charged with punishments the scroll. That is a biblical description of authority. And yet it is that type of rage, that type of independence, that type of rebellion that God addresses right here in Psalm chapter two. So we see it with the nations. We see it in ourselves. We can even see it in the kings of the world historically, the literal kings, King Herod, Caesar Augustus, as Jesus, God's anointed one, came and and inaugurated a new and spiritual kingdom on earth, the kings of the world plotted against him, even bringing him to his crucifixion. And Jesus tells us about this in John chapter 3. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were were evil. It's the story of humanity. It's the story of kings rebelling against the king. And in verse 4, we see how God responds. It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. To picture God sitting upon his throne outside of space and time of human history, looking down upon humanity with a scoffing laugh, it's it's hard for us to even imagine. Why would the author use such strong descriptions of God in this moment? Well, because the idea of God sitting and laughing is so vivid that it points to the futility of the rebellion. No matter how hard we try to rule ourselves or others, it will amount to nothing. Our rebellion and our sin will always bring harm upon ourselves, upon others, and upon the world. And the fact that we continue to try so intensely to rule, and, to con- and the fact that we continue to fail again and again and again, only further clarifies the futility of this quest. Think about it. Millions upon millions of dollars are spent even just in these few months of political campaigning, to stand against godly principles in the political realm of the West. In the East, the government agencies of China are organized in such a fashion to hunt private house churches that choose to worship God outside of the pre-approved means of the Communist Party. 
When we look in Europe, thousands of lives are expended and the whole world economy is thrown up in the air and compromised under the guise of an expanding kingdom of Russia. And what does it all result in? Nations rise and fall. Leaders are born and leaders die. Money comes in and it goes out. Political structures are built and then torn down. And the word of the Lord remains forever. And God holds them in derision. He scoffs at them. Their efforts are wasted. They're futile in their attempt to rule. And so verse five and six says that he will then speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God speaks to them in wrath and in fury. This is not the picture of a soft ruler, friends, who lets rebellion stand. But listen to what he says in his wrath, because at first it might sound to you to be a little anticlimactic. When you think of somebody speaking in wrath and fury, you picture someone with a loud and thundering voice, and maybe this is you, a loud and thundering voice that is announcing some kind of penalty. But that doesn't sound like what God is saying. But do not be confused, because that is exactly what he's saying. He's just not saying it the way that you might expect. God, in fury and in wrath, announces that he has set his king on Zion. This is the prophecy of the coming King Jesus. And we don't think of this as an expression of fury and of wrath, but those who would learn his coming and those who sit on this side of human history will know that not only did Jesus come to inaugurate a new kingdom, but through his death, burial, and his resurrection was established as the eternal king and as the king, he will judge the world. The day of judgment will come for those who rebel against this king. Kings and commoners alike, presidents and citizens, refugees and wanderers alike, God's king will judge the world. Friends, this is sobering news, but it's good news. God doesn't let rebellion last forever. Think about in your own life, are you ever discouraged because you see those in power and how they scoff at God? Judgment day is coming. <laughs> are you ever personally downtrodden because you are mocked or persecuted or held back because of your devotion to King Jesus? Judgment day is coming. Are you tempted to feel sometimes as I am as if there is no hope 
When you look at the thing around you, you look at the world around you, you see human history seemingly spiraling out of control farther and farther and farther away from the way things are supposed to be. And you feel like, is there any hope? Know that God's king will reign from his holy hill and he will cast down all of those who will oppose him. True and pure justice will be administered. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 5, that not only is he the savior who gives life, but he is the king who will judge. As he says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. For as the father has life in himself, he's granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given the son authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. All of human history will one day bow the knee to him who is both Lord and Christ, him who is both Savior and Judge. His name is Jesus. And so there is a divine decree. The decree concerning this coming king in verses seven to nine. Look at it with me if you have your Bible open. The prophecy concerning Jesus are words from the father about his son. And we see really three important parts of it. That he is miraculous in his birth and has divine nature. It's foretold in verse 7 when the father says, Today I have begotten you. His universal rule over all of the world as king is foretold when the father says, The nations shall be your heritage. And his judgment is foretold when the father says, you shall break the nations with the rod of iron and dash them in the potter's vessel. You know, sometimes we have the propensity to be confused about Jesus and to get his characteristics and his attributes out of balance. We're all tempted to do that. We want to focus on the characteristics and attributes of Jesus that we really would like applied to us. (laughs) And we want to minimize the characteristics or attributes that we really don't want applied to us or don't want to think about because it makes us uncomfortable. We might think that just because Jesus was born in human flesh that he could not be God's chosen ruler. But he is. And his resurrection from the dead proves it to be true as he is divine. We might think that just because Jesus appears to be meek, that that means that he will not reign in power, but he will. (laughs) And his reign will have no end. 
And we might think that just because King Jesus is loving, and he is, that this means that he will not judge, but he will. His love and his justice are in perfect balance with each other. Jesus is glorious, he's majestic, he's powerful, he's mighty, and he is awesome in his reign. We proclaim him to be so. If we did not proclaim him to be so, even the rocks would cry out at the majesty of this king. He is the king. And the psalmist recognizes the call that this king requires. It's the call for the kings of the earth. It's the call for the peoples of the nations. And it is the call for the nations at large. It's found in verses 10 through 12. The call is to take refuge in King Jesus and you will be blessed. Here's the logic of the psalm. Here's the logic of the gospel. This is how God humanity, the world, salvation, judgment, all relate together. If God is the creator and the ruler of the world, and if we rebel against him as our king, which is what we do in our sin, and if our efforts are for our rule, and those efforts are futile in their nature, as the psalmist says, and if God sets his true king over all the world, King Jesus. And if that true king will judge all of those who rebel against him someday, then where should we turn? Where is the place that we can find safety? Where is the place that we can find refuge? And the answer is that King Jesus is the only one to take refuge in. And verses 10 through 12 clarify And they give a warning and they give that call to response. Let's read it together. Just follow as I read. It says this. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Take refuge in King Jesus and you will be blessed. Be wise and be warned. It sounds like the words of David in Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Or the words of Solomon in Proverbs 1, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Be wise and be warned. There's a call to serve with fear and to rejoice with trembling. And it's the appropriate response for one of this magnitude and severity. King Jesus can't simply be ignored. He can't be worked around. 
He can't be acknowledged with our mouth, but then not with our actions. He can't be remembered one day and forgotten the next. In a world that is moving at a breakneck pace, with people who are generally disposed toward their own comfort, toward their own pleasure, no matter what stands in their way. King Jesus demands a response. When something as severe as a hurricane moves toward South Florida, the people need to respond with action. When a new baby enters into your family, the parents need to respond in some way. They can't just pretend like the little guy never exists. And when the king of the universe is made known, then all of those who learn of him need to respond. And no response is a response. No decision is a decision because there are two ways to live. (laughs) Our way, under our own rule and reign, making ourselves little kings and having the consequences of that in our life and in judgment. Or God's new way, under the rule and the reign of King Jesus, with the new life and eternal life that he and he alone can give. And so the psalmist says, be wise and be warned. How should we decide to respond to the true king? Verse 12 tells us, kiss the son, lest he be angry and perish, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. It's an interesting expression. Kiss the son. We bend the knee and we bow the heart before him. He is the king. He is gracious and merciful to all of those who acknowledge his reign and all of those who follow him. For one king to bend and to kiss the son of another, you might even imagine kissing them on the hand, was a sign of ultimate respect and submission. It was a sign that greatness was recognized. And the one giving the kiss was humbly yielding to the one with a greater power. Friends, we kiss the sun out of respect. We kiss the sun out of honor. We kiss the sun out of love. We kiss the sun to show our submission to him. His reign is truly greater than our reign could ever be. Friends, I hope that you love Jesus more than you love your comfort. I beg you to love Jesus more than you love yourself. I encourage you to fully submit yourself to him fully and completely because he alone can forgive. He alone can give new life. He alone will judge and he alone will rule and he will share his rule with no one. Take refuge in King Jesus and you will be blessed. It's interesting, isn't it? That the tone of the entire psalm, serious, strong, not harsh, but severe, 
but it ends with this one positive note. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. (laughs) It's not a psalm without care and opportunity. Refuge is found in him. Refuge from judgment. Refuge from the raging nations. Refuge from the storms of life. Refuge even from our sinful propensities. And you can take refuge in him through faith. Take refuge in King Jesus and you will be blessed. Queen Elizabeth II died this year. And despite the fact that the British sovereign is a figurehead in a democratic nation, she still carried with her much influence around the world. And you might have seen this autumn that a quote about devotion to King Jesus was attributed to Elizabeth, although it was actually said by her great-great-grandmother, Queen Victoria. And it was recorded by Dean Farrar, the Dean of of England's Canterbury Cathedral from 1895 to 1903. After the sermon, the queen who had carried much greater power than her great-great-granddaughter and much greater influence upon the commonwealth in her day, spoke to him on the topic which he had chosen, and she said, Oh, how I wish that the Lord might come during my own lifetime. Why? asked the preacher. Does your majesty feel this earnest desire so much? Oh, replied the queen with quivering lips and with her whole countenance lightened by deep emotion. I should so love to lay my crown down at his feet. It's a powerful image. A queen of the earth bending the knee and laying down the crown before the king of the earth. Take refuge in King Jesus and you will be blessed. Queen Elizabeth II shared this recognition of her great-great-grandmother, shared the recognition of the difference between her royalty and the royalty of King Jesus. She desired, or so it said, that she would not be one of the rulers who take counsel against him, as Psalm 2 talks about. Instead, she desired to kiss the son. Every year at Christmas, in a broadcast to the nation, And a broadcast watched by millions, the queen would share her Christmas address, which included personal stories of Christian faith as a key to all that she does. And some years ago, for example, she quoted a verse from the well-known carol in the bleak midwinter. 
And here, the Queen of England, with all of her wealth, with all of her recognition, with all of her history, with all of her influence, said, what can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring him a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? Give him my heart. Take refuge. Take refuge in King Jesus and you will be blessed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we recognize that we have to deal with the desire to be our own king, to live our lives our own way, and this is something we have to reckon with every single day. And today we proclaim that Jesus is the king. We desire to kiss the son. We find our refuge in him. We do not desire to rage against his rule. We do not desire to experience the consequences of judgment. Today, we look upon your ruler who is on your holy hill and we proclaim him to be both Lord and Christ, both king and judge and also our savior. And it is in him that we find our hope. Amen.